Welcome to 15 Minutes of Mental Toughness with your host, Dr. Rob Bell. Dr. Rob interviews expert coaches, executives, and athletes about mental toughness and their hinge moments. The hinge. It connects who we are with who we've become, and it only takes one. And now for your host, Dr. Rob. Right? So you have a group of boys, they will get angry at you they'll be downright brutal in the moment but as soon as practice is over as soon as the game is over everyone's best friends again like nothing carries over on the field girls will say oh great job good try and then they'll walk off the field to the other friend and go god she's terrible why is she on our team and that which happens in september like you just said that will still be the issue in march because they don't address them. And this is kind of, again, the culturalization of girls, which is play nice, be kind, take turns, versus um, you know deal with the issue and, and get on with it. Hey, this is Dr. Rob Bell. If you want a free ebook, the best mental toughness quotes that will make you better, just text Dr. Rob Bell, that's D-R-R-O-B-B-E-L-L, to this number, 33 33- Four four four. You'll get a download right away. So our guest today is the uh, is the founder of uh, Changing the Game Project. So he's author of the book Changing the Game: A Parent's Guide to Rise, Raising uh, Happy and High Performing Athletes. Uh, it was a bestseller book. I know so many people in the uh, sports world have read it. I've read it. I think it's a fantastic book. Uh, he's also host of Way of the Champions podcast, in which. I've been a guest, so thank you very much. Uh, it's a great podcast. We're going to have links for that. Uh, but our guest also has a new book, and it's titled Every Moment Matters, How the World's Best Coaches Inspire Their Athletes and Build Championship Teams. So our guest is none other than John O'Sullivan. Coach, how you doing, buddy? Man, Rob, thanks for having me on, man. I appreciate it. Absolutely, man. So how's life? Uh, life is good over here for sure. I live in Oregon and the Northwest is uh, trying to get snowy for the winter, which is good because I'm a big uh, outdoors skier and climber like that. And um, been kind of hurting here because I can't, it's, it's, it's too wet and snowy to ride my mountain bike, but it's, uh, <laughs> it's not snowy enough yet to ski. So I'm kind of stuck right now. Oh, I get it, man. Well, being in Indianapolis, it gets cold, but don't, don't move here for the skiing, man. So no, I won't. I won't. <laughs> well, I mean, um, being a fellow author, I mean, I know all the uh, blood, sweat and tears that goes into writing the book. Um, and just to delve into it, I mean, the reason why you wrote a book, I mean, you, you begin the book by discussing a moment that you had with a previous player that you coach. Can you talk about that? Yeah. Um, so I, I, I talk about, uh, you know, the, the sort of, we all have these origin stories, right. That, that send us down a path and there's probably a couple in, in my life as a coach, but certainly, um, one of them was I was coaching collegiate soccer and I, um, got a phone call, you know, it was January and it was quiet and the phone's not ringing too much. And I got a phone call from one of the first kids I ever coached. His name was Pat. And, um, he was saying I was working at the University of Vermont and he was done with high school at that point, done with college. And he was going to apply to med school there. He said, Hey, I'm coming up to check out UVM and love to see you and everything. And so we're having this great chat and he goes, you know, cause I just want to say like when I, um, when I'm studying for the MCATs or when I'm, you know, working out in the weight room or when I'm doing A, B and C's like, you know, I, 
every time I want to quit, I still think of you. Like I think of you saying, is that the best you can do? Um, could you do a little bit more? Um, could you do one more set? Can you study a little harder? And he goes, I wanted to say thank you. And I was like, wow, Pat, like crazy. And so we, we finished the conversation. I hang up and uh, I tell the coach I'm working with that story. He's like, man, that's great. I'm like, that's not great. Like, that's like the worst thing I've ever heard. Cause I'm thinking like for every kid, like Pat, right. One of the first kids I've ever coached, I was his high school coach. Um, he was a great kid. We got along great. He was a team captain. Um, for every kid like him, I was thinking like there was a lot of others I probably wasn't a very good coach for. Right? I went and told him to go take up kayaking or something else. And I was like – and so I'm like this this is not good. Like would kids remember what we say? They remember like back seven, eight years ago for something that we did as a coach? And, and then uh, I'm like this isn't good. And so that kind of set me down this path of um, thinking about like – Wow, I better be more intentional about the things I say and do because, you know, athletes remember them their whole life. And as a coach, right, we work. It's it's public. It's very emotional. Um, we keep score, right? And yet, something that we say or do can stick with a person the rest of their life, either positive or negative. And we don't get to pick what they remember and what they forget. So we have to be intentional, and that's really kind of the theme of the book is being intentional means every moment matters every yeah. moment matters you you got to be on your a game because you never know today's the day where the thing that you say might stick that athlete's ready to learn so it whatever comes out of your mouth better be good yeah no and i, I totally get that man i mean do you think then in today's culture uh especially then with coaching do you think coaches is it just that we get too caught up in the emotion and the outcome and winning ranking statistics and that's what takes us away from because I don't really think any coach intentionally wants to destroy a kid's confidence or tell them that you know you should take up kayaking. <laughs> what, do you, no. what do you what do you think? Where do you think like we mess up most as coaches? Well, I think we have to define right the spectrum of coaches as well, also. Sure. And for those who start with five year olds through, I would even say, you know, certainly high school, if not most of college sports that's sport for development right and then professional sports and high-end college football and basketball that's sport for entertainment right and and those are two really important uh distinctions because when you're in the sport for entertainment business yeah you know outcomes are really high on your list um but yet you know as you uh, in my book i interview some of the best professional coaches who all still talk about the process mm -hmm. right but for those of us in the sport for development world and that's where i've spent most of my or you know really all my time coaching and and certainly my coaching today um we you know you're right no one goes into it thinking god i hope i screw up my kids today but unless we have self-awareness um, and unless we train ourselves not to react in these stressful emotional situations, but we train ourselves to respond, mm -hmm. um, then the wrong thing is going to come out at the wrong time quite often. And I know as a young coach, it certainly did for me. And so the book is, you know, I, I, I don't write this book as like the perfect model. And there's plenty of vulnerability in it. I think of, you know, here's here's where I screwed up. Here's what I wish I had done differently. <laughs> But and that's the point that you talk about in the book is, I mean, you know, if, if we're having a bad day as a coach and we say that one negative thing to that athlete, the feeling that they're going to have going away could just totally change our um, 
our relationship with them and can just put them down a different trajectory, right? Oh, definitely. And I mean, you work one-on-one with many athletes trying to change that that self-talk, right? Or that inner voice. And and that inner voice is really, you know, what's the message they hear the most that then they start repeating to themselves? And it can come from a, par- a parent, um, often does come from a parent. It can come from um, coaches. It can come from peers. Um, but, but teaching people to, you know, what's the voices you should be listening to and what's the ones you have to sort of, you know, learn to talk yourself and and not listen to is so important. But I, I imagine in, in your work, you meet many, you know, athletes, you know, standing over a three foot putt on the 18th to win a tournament. What's the voice in your head saying in that moment, you know, and if it's not saying the right thing, you're in trouble. Yeah. And if, uh, if they're on the 18th hole and then they have those bad thoughts with a three foot putt, then I haven't done my job coach. <laughs> you, you haven't, but yet again, you, you've worked really hard yeah. to do that right and probably when you first met them they did have those bad thoughts which probably meant they weren't standing on the 18th hole with a three-foot putt to win do you or a loved one need a better night's sleep sleep is the most important component to our overall mental and physical health but too often we just don't get a good night's sleep the product that you need without a doubt is Psalm Sleep. What you do is you drink a can of Psalm Sleep 30 minutes before you want to fall asleep. You have a great night rest and then you wake up feeling refreshed, not foggy or hungover. I drink it all the time when I know I need an important night's sleep and I can't mess around with it at all. Listeners today, you get 15% off if you go to GetSom, that's G-E-T-S-O-M.com and in the promo code, enter Dr. Rob Bell, that's D-R-R-O-B-B-E-L-L, you get 15% off. Everyone needs a better night's sleep. Go to GetSom.com. The part that I love about your book a lot is you put so many different strategies and techniques in there, and I'm a a technique hound, you know. I mean, one that I thought was great, and I know a lot of coaches can apply, and even the teams I work with, I'm going to start doing that. But you, you have a section in there. Um, and it started with the hashtag, I wish my teacher knew. Mm. Can you talk mm. about that strategy and, and, and how that can be impactful? Yeah, sure. So this was a, a book that cr- I crossed paths with a couple of years ago uh, by a teacher named Kyle Schwartz. And Kyle's a, it's a she. And she worked in uh, an inner, inner city school. Mm-hmm. And, you know, she had students that she really felt like if I'm going to connect with these students, I need to get to know them better. Right. Because I'm not going to see things about them on their transcript. So she had them. She handed out these index cards with this idea. You know, I wish, you know, one thing I wish my teacher knew about me was dot, dot, dot and said, complete this sentence. And so the things that started coming back were incredible. Right. And and insightful from the point of, you know, um, my dad was deported seven years ago and I haven't seen him since to my parents are divorced to my mom has cancer to um, we usually don't have any food at home. So if I'm eating a snack in class, it's because it's the only thing I've eaten in the last day. You know, now as a teacher, when you're looking at that, that student now, that's a whole different lens. And so when I read that book, I thought, well, why aren't coaches doing this, right? Why aren't coaches asking 
um, you know, having kids fill out this sentence, right? Um, one thing I wish my coaches knew that would help them coach me better is dot, dot, dot. And so I started doing it with my teams and I started when I was doing these coaching workshops asking coaches to do that and saying, you know, have your athletes finish the sentence, see what happens. And, and, you know, you say like, don't tell me you need to work on your left foot or you need to work on your putting. Like I'll figure that out. Right. Tell me something that I might not ever know about you. Um, that will really give me really good insight into what you need from me as a coach. And it's been awesome in my own teams where a kid puts, you know, it could be something as simple as, um, you know, I know sometimes I put my head down when you're hard on me, but please don't stop because I, I appreciate it and I know I need it, right? To, I don't like being first in line because I don't know what you're talking about, but once I see it, I can do it. You know, to, my parents got divorced and my mom was just diagnosed with cancer and soccer is the only good thing in my life right now. So if I ever seem distracted, it's probably because of what's going on at home, but I love it here. Please make it fun. Yep. Now, this is insight that changes the way that I coach, right? I, I coach the person, not the sport. And if you have this insight, it's powerful. And so, you know, I, I started asking coaches to do this. And, and I mean, I've had some coaches a year later follow up with me and be like, hey, I did that. And here's what happened. And some of those stories have gone from everything to we, you know, I've never had a better season as a coach to, hey, we saved a kid's life um, right. because she was contemplating suicide and she wrote it down on that piece of paper and we were able to intervene and, and get help. And so, you know, when we think about like what's the higher purpose as a coach, for me, that's it right there. Yeah. And I love it, man. I think that's why uh, the book is so great, too, man. I mean, Coach, um, you talk about in the book, and I love the titles in it, but you said you can't practice in the, quote, kind world if you compete in the wicked one. Mm, excellent. Talk well, about you know, that one, please. Yeah, for sure. So uh, first of all, um, kudos to uh, my friend and author David Epstein who just wrote a great book called Range mm -hmm. where I first came across those phrases um, when he writes about them in, in Range um, but it's from uh, this research named uh, Robin Hogarth who, who talks about uh, if we look at um, sport on a, on a spectrum right uh, kind would be chess and wicked would be a highly dynamic sport like soccer or ice hockey or something like that. Constant movement, constant decisions. Um, and every sport falls somewhere on that spectrum. Um, and if we're coaching a sport, you know, the more wicked the sport is, um, the more dynamic it is, our practices have to be representative of that. And so what happens in coaching a lot is we carve up things in the wrong places. Um, and, and we think when we carve them up like, oh, this is a kind sport. So in my sport that I coach soccer, people will have, you know, they'll work on passing by having two people stand 10 yards apart and work on locking their ankle and passing a ball back and forth. Um, but that's not representative of how do I um, pick my head up before I get a ball and pass a ball, a moving ball between two moving defenders to a moving target to the correct foot at exactly the correct time mm -hmm. and then recognize which is the right choice and where should I move after, right? That's a wicked sport. 
and that's a kind practice. And if all my practices are kind, this isn't going to work, right? And even a sport like golf, which people might think, oh, well, it's a kind sport. And, and we see golf coaches hitting 50, you know, golf instructors, you know, hit 57 irons in a row. Um, you know, there's really interesting research in golf where, you know, they take a pro golfer and they put one of those, you know, motion suits that they do the movies on where they do the animated characters and they have them hit 10, seven irons. Right. And on the range, the, a pro golfer will make pretty much the same exact swing 10 times. And then they'll go play a round of golf and they'll look at the 10 seven irons he hit during that round. Um, and he made 10 different swings based on where's the ball, where's the pin, what's the shot I'm trying to hit, right. what's my lie, is it above my feet, is it below my feet. So if we practice golf in that kind world, we're not getting the representativeness of that seven iron on the course, never mind the mental and the emotional and the heart racing and all this other stuff that might happen in tournament play. So, so let me let me yeah, ask you ahead. a question, Coach. So when it comes, like, what do you think's a, a a good ratio between the blocked and the random practice, even in just like a closed sport, like well, open sport like golf? Where, where mm. do you think that percentage so, would lie? So I think it it really what what the experts in this field, right? The researchers you're talking about. People I talk about in the book, like Ian Renshaw and Keith Davids, and um, you know what, what they would say. You know, there's a lot of variable go into answering that question. Number one, if you're a coach, how much time do you have with your athletes, right? So if I'm a professional coach and I have 20 hours of training time a week in a highly dynamic sport, I have opportunities to block my practice and work on very specific techniques. If I am Tiger Woods and I'm working on a specific shot, right, hitting a stinger off the tee, I've got time because I practice five hours a day to do that. But most of us coach in this world where, right, I don't meet many coaches who are like, oh, I have too much practice time with my team. I'd love to give some back. Right. Right. It doesn't happen. So the less practice time we have, the less we should block our practice. Right. And so it doesn't mean that we can't pull out and say, hey, here's this technique. Or if we have really young kids and they're learning something new, we can't say, hey, you know, try this a couple times. But the sooner that we can turn up the representativeness, the sooner we can add the dynamic elements in, the more transfer we have. And transfer is the ability to take this technique you've learned, right, the ability to perform a task and turn it into a skill, which is the ability to deploy it in the environment, yeah. right? And the competition is all about skills, not techniques. Mm -hmm. That which truly matters. That which truly matters, right? Yeah. I mean, you want you practice to be good at practice, or do you practice? Because because I'm fantastic on the golf range, right? I can I can play wedge games with my friends and and, and you know get inside <laughs> them all the time. Put me on the course, sculling it over the green. Mm -hmm. <laughs> One of the pieces that I've always found interesting in um, sports is when it comes to female teams versus male teams. You know, one of the uh, phrases that I've heard that I kind of like is that, um, you know, men are microwaves, women are crockpots. Okay. <laughs> you, say, you say it in your book, I love that one, women tend to weigh the odds, men tend to ignore them. And in the book, you discuss the differences between men and women in sports and the, kind of the coaching styles. Um, 
let's talk about that and wherever you want to start. But because I, I just think that's such an important piece in today's uh, society is look, there are differences. And like we said, right, there's, it's not good or bad, but it is just different. And so how we approach these things have to be different. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and this is a huge topic. I mean, this could be a whole book um, that I try to deal with in a chapter. And um, so um, I have to make, you know, sort of two caveats before I dive into it. Caveat one is that, you know, one of the reasons I wrote this book was kind of like I want to cover a lot of stuff that um, – is super important for coaching, but we never, it never gets covered in coaching education, which is usually about, you know, drills and games and things like that. Um, and then number two, when we talk about the difference between coaching, um, boys and girls, men and women, um, it's only one difference that we could talk about. We could talk about the difference between coaching, um, older and younger, between coaching inner city kids and suburban kids, uh, between coaching kids in the U S and coaching kids in Australia. Right. So there's lots of differences. Um, and, and it's just important to remember that this is just one of them, but this is also one that a lot of people encounter. Right. How many dads coach their daughter and then they attempt to coach it like they were coached on the high school varsity football team. And all of a sudden it's like, uh, boom, you know, um, it, it, wow, this doesn't work with these girls. And so I attempted in this chapter to explore some of these differences, most of which are not biological, they're their gender. Right. So it's how we raise our girls and our expectations of girls. Um and, and, and so that's what that, that's kind of what the chapter is about. And so just the chapter title, um, women are great at um, weighing the odds and, and, and men are great at ignoring them. This comes from some research in politics where, um, you know, on the national level where incumbents win 90 something percent of elections, um, not a lot of women, you know, women are overrepresented on local politics and very underrepresented in Congress. Um, because it's really hard to beat an incumbent. Men are very likely to run if there's a chance to win, and women will run when there's a good chance to win. So women run when the incumbent retires. Women run more when uh, there's a scandal. But if it's some entrenched 10-term congressman, you don't get many women opponents, right? And I tell the story in the book, and, and I think – the researcher who I got it from um, tells it as well. Um, if anyone's ever seen the Jim Carrey movie, Dumb and Dumber, um, when at the end, when he asks Mary Swanson out, he says, you know, what are the chances of a girl like you and a guy like me getting together? Uh, and, and he's no, like, guy, guy like you, girl like me. guy like you, a girl like me. Yeah, yeah sorry. I, I didn't want to quote it exactly because people would be like, what is he saying? But you're exactly right. And uh, and he says, you know, and he says, I got one in a hundred. And she's like, no, more like one in a million. And he goes, so you're saying there's a chance. Right. Sorry. And that's the guy attitude. <laughs> yeah. sure. What was what was all that one in a million talk? What was all that <laughs> one in a million talk right there? Yeah, exactly. So anyway. No, I love it, man. And so one of the things I've seen is you know, and again, this is my experience, is that if we have a problem, um, you know, that that may last a, a practice, may last a couple of days until we kind of have it out, we compete over it, you know, but something, but then it's like, we move on. One thing that I've seen, and this is why I'm wondering if you can comment to it, is like, a lot of times, like on female teams, if there was a problem in March, it's that same problem we're talking about in November, Mm -hmm. 
Um, have you experienced that? And then what do you recommend for coaches that are listening in terms of like how do we um, how do we approach that? How do we how should we approach the differences in, in teams? Yeah, I mean, it's it's a huge thing. And, you know, I share a lot of the research in the chapter, but I also share my own experiences, yeah. right? Because I've coached NCAA Division One women down to five-year-old girls, and I've coached men in the same range as well, boys and, and, and men. And I just got done with a three-year stint with middle school girls. Um, and I am just started, um, you know, seven months into uh, a couple-year stint with uh, middle school boys, right? So I see this stuff firsthand. Um, and, and, uh, you know, I'll just tell you a story. We had some friends over for Thanksgiving and their youngest daughter, who was 11, had just gone to this, uh, she's a very good player and she went to a practice and it was a mixed practice with boys and girls. And she came, she said, I loved playing with the boys because they tell you exactly what they're thinking in the moment. They don't tell you afterwards when it's not helpful. Right. So you have a group of boys, they will get angry at you they'll be downright brutal in the moment but as soon as practice is over as soon as the game is over everyone's best friends again like nothing carries over on the field girls will say oh great job good try and then they'll walk off the field to the other friend and go god she's terrible why is she on our team and that which happens in september like you just said that will still be the issue in march because they don't address them. And this is kind of, again, the culturalization of girls, which is play nice, be kind, take turns versus, um, you know, deal with the issue and, and get on with it. And so one of the challenges we face when we're coaching girls is to get them to hold each other accountable, to get them to speak their mind, to not take it behind their teammates back or to social media or to text but learn to talk to people's faces right and if you've got a problem with what she's saying to you or how she's acting we're going to deal with it and we're going to address it right here and now and so oftentimes from middle school on up i think our as a coach um, my biggest challenge with coaching girls is managing the group and um, my biggest challenge with boys is like coaching the group right? right they want to know why we're doing this activity and why are we doing this drill and why are we here at practice girls are fine with that um but you're just managing the personalities can be exhausting yeah but if you don't you're dead you're toast and um and one of the parts i loved in the book and we talked about coach anson dorrance when the praising styles even of public versus private talk about that one please Mm -hmm. So Anson Dorrance is the women's soccer coach at North Carolina, um, just went to, I don't know, his 26th or 7th national final here in late 2019. They lost in penalty kicks, but he's won 22 of them. He was won a World Cup. So, right, so this is a guy who kind of understands the dynamics. And I think one of the really important things uh, that a lot of people don't know about Anson is uh, for seven years, he was also the men's coach at University of North Carolina um, and a very good player. So he did double duty and uh, he was actually the national coach of the year on the men's side. And I think six times or seven times on the women's side as well. So this is a guy who's kind of been there and done that. And he said, you know, one of the things he learned early on when he was doing double duty, he had to, um, you know, he, he was super busy. He was still actually, you know, taking classes in law school. He had young kids. He's married. So he's like, I don't have time to design two practices. I'll just use the same practice. And he's like, so, you know, some of these like 
practices, um, you know, when he saw a guy doing great, he'd be like, Rob, you are the best player out there today. Keep, you know, you are driving this team forward. Keep up the great work. And all your teammates like right on Rob, great stuff. He goes, if I did that to Mary, Mary would be mortified that I singled her out. Her teammates would be mortified that they were not acknowledged with praise um, or criticism. And they'd all end up hating me. While the boys all end up loving Rob and, and loving me, the girls end up, you know, hating Mary and hating me. And he's like, so I recognize really quickly that, you know, I had to take the praise and the critique in private. And when I did that, Mary was more than happy to be critiqued or praised, just not in front of her teammates. Now, if her teammate praised her, she's good with it. But if if I did that, I acknowledged her publicly, he goes, it, it would only have a negative effect. You know, I couldn't wait to, to, to do this because as a player, you know, he goes, I loved it when my coach said, Anson, you're the best guy out there today. And is that because then of the reaction from the other girls and it would just cause a resentment? It would cause resentment. Yeah, it would cause resentment. And and so, you know, one of the biggest challenges with your female athletes is um, sometimes getting them to compete and to dominate um, in a group that's constantly seeking equilibrium, right? If you have a team of male athletes, the, the guy who's the best player, he doesn't care that he's the best player, right? He's perfectly happy with it. And most of his teammates are totally happy that Rob's better than all us because Rob can be the best and I can be the funniest and, you know, Jimmy can be the smart, the smartest, and as long as we all have a role, we're good. But in in female teams, oftentimes they seek equilibrium, and when they're seeking equilibrium, um, it's really hard for the best to compete at their best, and it's really hard for the you know people who feel like they're dragging the group down. They they often want to quit. Yeah. You know, you you also talk about one of the the techniques in the chapter there. You discuss coming up with your never nevers as a yeah. coach. Um, like I said, man, I love the book. Right, every every moment matters. Um, yeah. Can you discuss that? Well, yeah, sure. And I mean, this is something that you touch on all the time in in your work as well. You know, your never nevers are really about embracing the process and what are the things that we control as as a team, right? And and so it's so easy to be so focused on winning, right? Showing up to win um, that all of a sudden we lose confidence because so many things affect winning, right? Um, you know, you work with, you know, high level golfers and you're caddying, they could play fantastic and still lose, right? And, and so if it's only about, God, I got to win, I got to win, I got to win, right? You become focused on the outcomes. You, um, it, it makes you stressed. It makes you tentative. It makes you tense. Um, whereas if you just show up to compete, um, you know, your confidence rises because you're like, well, what are the things I control? I don't control the referee's call. I don't control my opponent, but I control my nutrition. I control my sleep. I control my focus. I control my preparation. I control my warm up. And, and if you, if you do that, um, that's great. And so the never nevers are kind of this reminder that we use with teams of, right. We never get, give up right? We're never defeated. Sometimes we just run out of time. We never lose confidence. It's just these sort of these reminders of what we stand for as a group, what we stand for as a team. Um, and if we if we go through the never-nevers and say, you know, did we give up, right? In, in our sort of debrief after a game, well, did we give up? 
yeah, we kind of gave up after that goal and they scored a second one. Perfect. There's a place to fix, right? Yeah. We control that moment, that five minutes after we give up a goal or that five minutes after we score a goal. What what is what is the effort and the level that we're going to bring in that moment, and and so it helps us debrief the process and not just debrief the outcome. Yeah. What was what was your uh, never never as a coach? You, you, what what do you mean? I'm sorry. Like well uh, well when you were coaching, like what was your favorite never nevers? Uh, I mean, certainly for, for me, um, I, I would say instead of like focusing on the what not to do like for me the big things when i coach are you know joy competitiveness and accountability mm-hmm. right so you know we're, we're we never you know stop having fun right doesn't mean it's not hard doesn't mean we don't work hard doesn't mean it's pleasure but we're we're always coming back because this is this is fun you know we we never don't compete so we're always competing um in practice uh, in warmups, everything's about the competition, right? Um, and, and then we're never not accountable, which is, um, you know, again, all that preparation, the focus and the willingness to accept um, instruction or critique from my teammates and change what I'm doing, even if I don't like what they're saying. That yeah. to me is what accountability is. See, I love that stuff, coach. <laughs> That's awesome, man. Yeah. Cool. One one of the parts that uh, I wanted to discuss with you about in the book is you talked about um, uh, the gold mine effect, mm. and you know if you could lay out that story, but the player that 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 guy's not going to make it, right? He's yeah. just not good enough. Uh, I wonder if you could lay out that story and then let's let's unpack it and do the laundry with it. Yeah, sure. So, so Goldmine Effect is a book by a guy named Rasmus Ankerson, who is a high-level soccer player, coach, and then now a, a speaker and an author and everything, who's really looked at sort of, you know, talent or ability and, and where's it come from. And and so he starts off his book with the story of you know being part of a, the academy at a club in Denmark called Midland and um, picking their first sort of 16-year-old team. And um, there's a really cool exercise. So they go and they, they can only find 15 kids or 17 kids, and they need one more to fill out the roster. And none of the coaches agree. High-level players, trained coaches can agree on who this is. Um, so they all agree to give the last spot to the son of the equipment manager because he was really good, right? And they didn't want the equipment manager to quit. And so they said, okay, you know what? We don't have an 18th player. Your son gets the spot, but all the other kids get to go for free, but you have to pay his way. <laughs> and so um, they train these 16-year-olds for about six months. And then they, um, the, the director brings all the kids in, all the coaches in and says, all right, um, let's go through a little activity. You've just got to look at all these kids now for six straight months. I want you to put five names each in an envelope who you think five years from now, about 20, 21, will have made it as a player. Right. Who's got the best upside? Who's got the best chance? And so all these high level coaches put five names in an envelope. And that's five and out of 18 names. Yeah. Five yep. out of 18, a third of the team. Yep. Right. And, and they say, OK, here you go. Uh, we're going to put these in a drawer and five years we're going to open it and see who is right. And five years later, they opened it and not a single one of those coaches had the equipment manager's son on there. His name was Simon Kiar. Um Meanwhile, he was starting for Denmark in the 2010 World Cup, 
right? He'd been transferred to Roma, and and he since then he's played played in Germany and Spain and Turkey, and you know, I mean, fantastic player, multiple World Cups, European Championships, um, one of the best players ever, and no one had his name. And so this uh, really, I use this story for this idea of. Um, oftentimes when we think we're identifying talent, we're identifying just ability and ability in the present moment. And the younger the kids that we work with, um, what we're usually identifying is not ability, but maturity. Right. right? And and so the best 16 year old players are usually the ones on the boy side who are already men. Right. And they're bigger, faster, stronger. And they're usually born within three months of whatever your arbitrary calendar cutoff date is. But over time, it's the late bloomers as a percentage usually make it to the top level. Yeah. You know, in terms of that, uh, one of the pieces that I've always find that's interesting is those, um, because if none of those coaches then were picking that equipment manager's son, then it's, it's highly likely that he was treated just a little bit different. Right. And the fact of, Hey, I'm, not going to spend that little extra time with him because there's not going to be a big payoff. But here mm-hmm. with 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 uh, <clears throat> Johan, I know he's going to be good, so I'm going to be a little bit more patient with him. Sort of that, uh, you know, I'm, I'm going to go ahead and take that extra time with him. Mm-hmm. One of the things I'm fascinated when it comes to coaching is those successful people, because I have yet to come across somebody that was told or shown that you can't do it, you know, why don't, why don't you, uh, why don't you pick another career? You're not good enough. Don't try it. Mm-hmm. And that part of being told that galvanized the self-belief in themselves enough that it goes beyond that. I'll show you mentality, but they had to believe in themselves. It forced them to believe in themselves because the only other alternative was, yeah, you know what? You're right. Mm-hmm. In your experience with the coaching, I mean, have you come across that about kids or people that were told that you can't do it and that's why they became successful? Yeah, I mean, I I think I've certainly seen it um, from a coaching standpoint. And, and I, you know, I think I've always kind of been never been that coach to say to someone, hey, you'll never make it here. Right. Right. Um, But I think many or or most or maybe all high-level athletes will point to a little bit of adversity in their life, right? There's research around that. Talent needs trauma, this guy Dave Collins says. And, um, you know, that adversity um, becomes fuel, right? It becomes fuel Say no way that I'm going to um, let you be right. I, I think in my own life growing up, I felt overlooked as a player a lot, and that and that drove me. Um, and I think um, th- there's so many examples of that. And I think what we're starting to see in the research now is um, that you know perhaps those character traits, right? That grit, that resilience, that um, that intrinsic motivation and drive to prove others wrong might be greater predictors of um, high-level success than certainly uh, early maturity or early, uh, you know, precociousness and ability. And and so, um, 
you know, there's just starting a guy, Joe Baker in Canada, starting to do some research on that. And uh, again, this guy, Dave Collins and Anya McNamara in um, uh, the UK have what they call the PCDEs, the psychological characteristics of developing excellence, right? And so what are these things that the, these common characteristics of the highest level performers and if these are skills, then they can be trained. And if we can develop these things, then shouldn't we be doing that when they're really young? Yeah, because I, <laughs> I mean, I do it all the time with my kids. You know. Yeah. You know, you're never gonna beat me in a round of golf. Yeah. I tell my, I tell my son <laughs> that all the time. He's gonna yeah. be beating me in about three years, but I'm not letting him know that. Yeah, I mean, I play like table tennis with my kids and stuff like that, and they still, I, I still play left-handed, which is not my strong hand. I'm like, when you can beat my left hand, then I'll switch to my good hand, yeah. you know. And and it's so it's so funny. Um, but it but it's also interesting, Rob, because I look at like, you know, I look at my own kids, and I I don't necessarily see sometimes the intrinsic motivation to get really good at something. You know, and I've talked to some high-level performers. You know, we interviewed a guy named Gary Gate on our podcast. Um, he, um, you know, probably the greatest lacrosse player of all time. And, you know, his kids were really good. But he said, you know, as a dad, I didn't see that that extra edge of drive that maybe made me the best in the world and keeps them at, you know, just very good. Right. And and so is that something that's internal? Because as a parent, right, we can drive our kid to have that and and there could be a lot of damage from that, you know, versus, you know, what are the expectations that I want to have for them? Because I, I could force my kids to pick up a ball every day and go, you know, practice soccer or my daughter likes to play volleyball or my son plays golf. But if it's me forcing you to do it every day, at, at what point? then is it no longer your experience? It's my experience. Right. Right. And that's where I think the, uh, I mean, a lot of that, man, it, it comes back to that art and science. You know, if that one moment is what we're going to remember, you know, the coach isn't ever going to remember telling that kid, Hey man, you should think about another sport. Um, but the kid's going to remember that one. And I think back to your point, I mean, not, there's going to be fewer people that I think excel going that route. Mm -hmm. Um, but to have healthy adjusted kids, um, all gets back to your book, man. That's why I think it's so important for coaches to get that one is every moment matters because it really does on that impact. Mm -hmm. Let me ask one more question, coach. And I ask this one to always end my podcast with, but is there a question that I need to be asking that I'm not asking? Hmm. That's a great question, um, and I, I think I, I, I try to do some <laughs> form of that too, right? I probably got um, it from uh, you, man. Uh, well, you know, I think you know, we covered a lot of stuff here, and obviously, um, you know, the book sort of has um, – <clears throat> the book is, is, is broken up into kind of four parts, right? Why do I coach? How do I coach? What does it feel like to be coached by me? And, you know, redefining success or how do I define success? And so um, – there's a lot of ground that I that I cover in the book, and I think you know we just scratched the surface here, but I think we really touched on some great topics that I think are not covered very often in coaching education, or they're not when we think about um, 
you know, going to develop ourselves as a coach or as a leader, oftentimes we look at the hard skills and we ignore the soft skills. And yet as a coach, um, uh, you know, it's the soft skills that are 80, 90 percent of what makes us remember our, our best coach. So I would just encourage, you know, the listeners here to remember that those are skills, too. And those are things that you can and should develop things like good communication and fairness and integrity and respect and making it fun and all this sort of stuff. And so you should never go, oh, well, that's just not me because that's kind of a cop out. Um, and then my last quote I'll leave you with is, um, you know, one of the guys I interviewed for the book was Terry Steiner, and he's the women's national team wrestling coach, legendary wrestler himself at Iowa under Dan Gable. Mm-hmm. Um, and he, he quoted, he, he, uh, a, a Bulgarian wrestling coach said this to him, but he didn't remember the guy's name. So I attribute the quote to him because he told me and he said, what's the difference between an artist and a coach? said at the end of the day an artist can throw his work out and start again and a coach cannot and so i think if we always remember that then we'll know that every moment matters and we need to be intentional mic drop <laughs> all right coach uh let us let us know um uh end us with uh, where can we find the book and obviously i'm gonna put the links on there but uh, i really appreciate you having uh or being on this podcast but uh, where, where can we find the book and where can we learn more about you Awesome, man. Well, yeah, I mean, best place is, is obviously, I think, given international audiences, Amazon and whatever country you're in, um, you can find it. Um, and or my website is changingthegameproject.com and uh, the forward slash every moment matters. And that's kind of the, the books uh, page there. We can get a copy. Um, and, and then, you know, I encourage your listeners, Rob, if people have questions about this or, you know, we've had a lot of people already sort of pre-order, hey, we want books for the whole staff, just email me, uh, John, J-O-H-N at changingthegameproject.com. And, uh, you know, I, I do always get back to you, not always within 24 hours, but uh, I always get back. And so if anyone has any questions or thoughts or wants to continue the discussion, um, let's do it. Awesome, Coach. Awesome. Well, Rob, thanks so much for having me on. Thanks for the great work that you do with your podcast uh, and your newsletter. I look forward to every one of them and I read them all the way through. You're you're up on my list of like three or four that I read everything and that would be you and and James Clear and and Seth Godin. So there you go. That's a good list to be a part of. Thank you, man. Good company. Yeah. All right. Since since you said that, I'm going to throw in I'm going to throw in a little something in one of these newsletters. I'm going to see if you read it. (laughs) (laughs) And you're going to say, and if John O'Sullivan's reading this, you better email me back. (laughs) Yeah, that's it. (laughs) Thanks, man. You got it. Thank you for listening to the Mental Toughness Podcast. If you like what you heard today, please be sure to subscribe to our podcast. You can also check us out on Twitter at Dr. Rob Bell or visit our website at drrobbell.com.